0: Hi everyone, James here. Now, before we start this week's show, I just want to tell you one little thing about it, and that is that it was actually recorded quite a long time ago, all the way back in February, in fact. And the reason I want to tell you that is because, uh, first of all, it's obviously in the office and we're all still in our homes at the moment. And also because there'll be a few things that we might say in there that might really perhaps give away that we didn't record it this week. For instance, I do talk about Jasper Carrot for a while, and that probably would have been a dated reference any time that we'd said it in the last five years. But hey, when you listen, you'll get the idea. So enjoy the show and uh, just marvel about how young we all sounded back in February. Okay, on with the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Anna Chizinski, and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Anna.
2: My fact this week is that in the 18th century, women expressed their political beliefs by wearing decorative stickers on their faces.
0: Wow, oh, that's cool. What kind of yeah. stickers did they say, like vote Labour or.
2: Uh, yeah, screw you, Boris, uh, just <laughs> wow. scrawled very, all over their foreheads. Very
1: prescient of them.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, women have amazing foresight. <laughs> <laughs> and foreheads. You this have a sticker on. Um, no, this one, so facial stickers were in this huge fashion for about sort of 200 years. Um, and about the turn of the 18th century, they suddenly became political. And so there was one commentator, for instance, who said that he went to the opera and he saw two parties of very fine women, as he said, arranged in battle formation against each other. (laughs) And he said one group was wearing patches and stickers on the left side of their foreheads and the other on the right. (gasps) It became apparent they were Whig supporters and Tory supporters. And I looked into this and this was a thing.
0: So it wasn't the stickers were just like little like beauty spots or something but it was where you wore them that was important is that it?
2: Yes that seems to be it yes Uh, so they started off as for decoration but it got to the extent that there were some marriage contracts where women would insist before they married their husband that regardless of the husband's political opinions the wife should be able to patch as she pleased
1: wow Wow. and and so you would have one or two things but did it get to the point where people you know when you see full face tattoos Mm. did you ever Mm. see people just completely you would see not completely the
0: full face But you might see lots of these like fake beauty spots uh, and you could supposedly identify prostitutes because their faces had so many of these patches on them. Mm. Was that a sign of being sexy, though, having lots of stickers? Well, having one sticker was supposed to be. And the reason is um, supposedly Venus, the um, goddess of beauty, Mm. she had one mole on her face. And it was by that one imperfection that you could see how beautiful the rest of her face was. And the idea was that they were kind of copying that. And by having like one little beauty spot, it would show the paleness of your skin, perhaps, or, you know, show off the rest of your skin.
3: So if you have lots and lots of stickers, that means you're really, really beautiful. Because you you need so many imperfections to disguise how it fit you are. could be that. <laughs> you Often, wouldn't believe what I look like without these stickers on. Because yeah, I look really nice. It could have been that you're covering the symptoms of STDs. Oh, uh, it's a real it's, gamble, (laughs) (laughs) So were these Sorry I didn't think That we had um, Glue sticker technology In the When is this 18th century We had glue Sure okay (laughs) Were, Were they kind of Fuzzy felt Stickers, that kind of thing.
2: I actually don't think we had fuzzy felt. <laughs> <laughs> no. They would be made of various things, so they could be made of silk or taffeta or okay. leather sometimes. And then they'd have um, mouth fur, apparently. Mouth fur. Mouth. Like mouth on your tu- <laughs> on your tongue. Uh, no, have I suddenly developed a lisp? I
1: think so. <laughs> it sounded like mouse from where I was sat, but okay. Oh, mouth fur. Okay, I heard I- mouth as well. Ah.
2: Okay, right in and tell us <laughs> what you heard. Um, so, and then they'd have on the back uh, often a surface that you could lick. So, women tended to take them out of their handbags and lick them to attach mm. them to their face. So, you get very thin paper that does that. Or they had adhesives, so they'd just stick it on with some glue.
0: Yeah, but sometimes the adhesive wasn't so great. So there was an article in The Spectator that spoke about a woman who had a beauty spot on her forehead, but by the end of the evening, it had gone to her chin.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They got more and more elaborate as well, didn't they? As it caught on. So I think it started in France, and the French called them mouche, which is for flies, because they look like little flies landing on your Mm. face. Um, But... Yeah, they expanded to be weird shapes. So by the end of the 18th century, you'd have them cut into stars or sort of moons or crown shapes or any shape you wanted, really. You still
0: get those, don't you?
2: On small children. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah.
0: adults who like a bit of fun. Yeah.
2: yeah. Why are you wearing that <laughs> weird puppy dog on the middle of your forehead?
0: I was so considering doing it this morning. <laughs> Bottled out of oh, it again. Great. But yeah. No, you do get them like um, little kind of. Um, I don't know, stars and...
3: Yeah. I've been very brave at the dentist today. <laughs>
0: All sorts. <laughs> yeah. They don't stick those on your forehead, though, do they?
3: Uh, no. Actually, I've got, I used to have one of those, but it was a safety pin one, so that's not for the forehead. No. That's for the clothes. Safety pin, really? Oh, it's a badge. I'm describing a badge. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what's interesting about that is I think you're only brave at the dentist once, so you don't need it to be that's a badge. True.
3: You only need it to be a sticker. Do you know what? You're right. I'm confusing it with my... I've been to a party at Pizza Hut badge, which is a badge, because that's a thing that lasts a life. If you go yeah, to a party yeah. at Pizza Hut in the early 90s. Yeah, you want to
0: show off about that, don't you? That's why you wear badges. Yeah. You don't want to
3: be wearing a badge that says, I've been brave at the dentist, just to show off. You'd feel pretty silly at the military parade, wouldn't you, next to all the other medals it was just being brave at the dentist award. I got this one for bravery. <laughs>
1: Um, I saw there's some drawings that people have done of some of the designs, and there was a horse and carriage one, and I think that's been that was questioned a That was satire, was oh, it? That was someone oh. taking, yeah, taking the a piss out of how absurd they've shame. gone. What a shame! I, I thought was. that was real too. Yeah, yeah, I was really hoping that that would be because I just thought how interesting heads must have been back then. <laughs> huh? mm. what? No, more. I don't know what. Do you well, mean? just way more. If you're sitting on the tube and someone sat across from me with a horse and carriage drawn on their head, and they had mm. other cartoons, you know, I wouldn't need the paper. Just but, read so their So do,
0: do people still have tattoos these days? So do you just when you're sat at the tube? just read people's tattoos. I do, but they give me a look that says I'm not
1: friendly.
3: <laughs> oh, well, this is the thing about um, other kinds of stickers is that they can be indicators of how friendly or not someone is. Ooh. So bumper stickers, if people have uh, bumper stickers on their car, they tend to be more aggressive and territorial drivers. Oh uh, Yeah, yeah. There was a study in uh, 2008 by Colorado State University, and they surveyed people saying do you have bumper stickers on your car? And do you drive like a bastard? And basically people who said yes to one said yes to the other. They said, yeah, I drive more territorially, more aggressively. I do not respond constructively on the road when people <laughs> get in my way.
2: And how often are these the baby on board stickers? Because I do think that's
3: a Well,
0: I read that article and actually it said that it doesn't matter what's on the sticker, mm. right? So you might have a sticker that says everyone needs to be kind to each other and you're still yeah. going to drive like a maniac. Yeah. yeah.
1: So baby on board as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. More likely to be aggressive. Uh, Just one more thing on an alternative use for stickers Mm. uh, for yourself for decoration is to cover blemishes and so I think that's that's sort of where facial stickers might have come from originally but men wore them quite a lot Mm. to cover blemishes or to accentuate them And so so if men had been to war, for instance, it became quite common for them to come back and they'd put a scar sticker over their scar. I think if a scar started to fade or something, then you'd put a big (laughs) black scar there. And so there's, for instance, there's a bit in All's Well That Ends Well, which now makes sense. If you know it, where Bertram (laughs) comes back from war and it says he's got a patch of velvet on his face and it's unclear if there's a scar underneath. And it was sort of a thing that people did if they hadn't really seen much military action, and they were a bit of a coward, and they'd run away at the first sign anyway. Is that they'd suddenly put a big blemish on their face to imply that they'd been shot in the head? Wow, yeah, that's
0: amazing. I've got a little scar on my face. Maybe I'll try and accentuate it. Have you with some mouse fur? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do up one of the sides? I'm not sure which side. Uh, that side, oh like yeah, yeah, a little yeah. One, yeah, yeah.
2: Somewhere you got shot in the Civil War, isn't it? <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs>
3: Um obscene bumper stickers can oh, yeah. sometimes be a matter for the law, okay so there are all there are these lawsuits that happen in the USA over whether you're allowed a particular bumper sticker or not or whether it's basically creating a public disturbance just by having it on your car. So in 2008 uh, a guy uh went to the Georgia Supreme Court because he had a, a shit happens bumper sticker okay and I uh he won Great. and then. Uh, more recently This bit is very rude by the way But the police in Florida Arrested and charged at a man Who had a bumper sticker Which said I eat ass <laughs> and that was, it was really big and it's right in the middle of his back windscreen as well. So there's no way if you're driving along that you won't see it. And okay. was he
2: referring to donkey meat, do we know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not
3: sure. That wasn't his defence, actually. <laughs> <of course. laughs> it should, I mean, it absolutely should have been. <laughs> but the police pulled him over and they said, Can you amend it so it wasn't offensive? And he said, Well, how do you suggest I do that? And they said, Can you remove the second S from ass? So it would be I eat as. But okay. then the
2: grammar police come in from <laughs> the other side. <laughs> Um, guys, who's the, the grandfather, the god of stickers?
0: The god of stickers. The god of stickers. You has all know the football albums. Panini.
2: Yeah. Oh, no, I was thinking of Mr. Avery. Oh, Avery, yeah.
0: Oh, Avery.
2: Stanton. Uh, so I was sorry. sorry.
0: Thinking,
2: you know, Avery, well, because you never do any of the office admin, Andy, you are not familiar <laughs> with Avery stickers, but those of us who post letters every once in a while. Oh, this feels like
3: more of <laughs> wow. a grudge. It feels like this whole fact has been building up to a grudge. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, No, so Stanton Avery, mate, was the inventor of the self-adhesive Sticker, as in you mm. didn't need to lick it, you didn't need to add glue to it. And he still dominates the label market today. So I was looking <laughs> into him and he, um, so he built his first sticker machine. I love this, by marrying together a motor from a washing machine and a sewing machine, sewing machine part. Wow. So he smushed them together and generated a shed load of stickers. His company was initially called Come Clean Products, spelling come K-U-M which I think is a good thing, was changed. Uh, How how did he make his glue? (laughs) (laughs) He was actually very cagey about the process. He was so pretty tired. Uh, He was... (laughs) (laughs) He was super poor uh, and so he really like d- dragged himself up from the bottom. He lived in a rented chicken coop what? while he was- no, rented. He
3: couldn't even afford the deposit <laughs> yeah. on a chicken coop.
2: Did he pay the chickens every day? <laughs> <No. laughs> I don't know if the chickens own the coop. I think they were also renting. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Terrible flatmates. Yeah. (laughs) uh, You get eggs every morning. Oh, that's true.
4: Yeah.
3: Do you want to eat an egg if your flatmate has just laid it before your horrified eyes?
2: (laughs) I refuse to eat food that's come out of any of my friends' (laughs) arse. (laughs) <laughs> However, delicious.
3: went to, to chicken? That's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's so
0: cool. He could have written, um, "I eat," and then in brackets, "eggs that have come out of a chicken." <laughs> Close brackets, ass.
2: Good. <laughs> <laughs> Another strong defence. So many arguments are going up for. Um, so he uh, tried a how bunch did, of
3: business. How did, how did he get a washing machine in the chicken coop?
2: Uh, so I think this was post-chicken coop. And oh, okay. he got it because he married a slightly wealthier lady um, who lent him a bit of money. Wow. And he thought, I need us a washing machine. Shall we go back to your
0: machine?
1: place on <laughs> Chicken's out tonight. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Uh, so anyway...
1: Did you invite them to the hen-do?
0: He <laughs> 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 got laid that night.
1: <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the very first print run of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn had to be pulped after a bookstore owner discovered someone had sneaked a drawing of a penis into one of the illustrations. <laughs> The first suspect has to be the illustrator, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yes, we genuinely don't know. We don't know if it was the illustrator. We don't know if it was the photo engraver at the actual factory where they were printing the book. What we do know is when these books came out, at the end of chapter 32, Huck Finn is meeting his Aunt Sally and Uncle Silas, and Uncle Silas has a big erect penis drawn in in the illustration itself. And as a result, 30,000 copies had to be... Wow.
3: And, and did they,
2: they definitely check they check the plot and they don't it's not part of the storyline that references Uncle Silas's erection.
3: Weirdly, weirdly, I read the book and I can confirm there isn't a bit where Uncle Silas has an erection and okay. is showing it off to his family. <laughs> that must
0: have been very disappointing when you got to the end of that. <laughs> It's the
1: only reason I bought the book in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so this is obviously—it's a very important book in American literature. Ernest Hemingway said all modern American literature comes from one book, and it's called Huckleberry Finn. And the idea was it was the first book that used the vernacular of Americans at that point. Americans were really writing in the tone of British and European authors, um, not using the day-to-day language. And he kind of set the tone. Um, unfortunately, it's also um, a book that's laced with racism and uh, that's caused huge problems basically since publication. It's, it's not a book that's sort of not been controversial throughout the years.
2: The language used is difficult and racist and we should say that it's set, Mark Twain wrote it in the 80s, but it's set about 40 years earlier in the 1840s, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the main plot of Huck Finn, for anyone who hasn't read it, is basically it's about Huck Finn, who is this kind of poor kid, who, how old is he? 12 or 13? And he runs away along with a runaway slave, who is called Jim. And they run away together and they are good friends. And Jim is a very sympathetic character, but at the same time, very problematically drawn. Yeah, one of the... Not
3: drawn with an erect penis, (laughs) like Uncle Silas, we should say.
2: (laughs) No, People have objected to stuff other than that. So it was extremely controversial as soon as it was published, largely because of the kind of crudeness of some of the language and that it was written in this native dialect. It wasn't just like ordinary American dialect. It was proper Mississippi 1840s dialect. And it was banned for bad grammar and employment of inelegant expressions. Uh, things like in 1905, a Brooklyn library banned it because Huck not only itched, but he scratched. So apparently that's disgusting. And he said sweat when he should have said perspiration.
0: So Mark Twain had been kind of unhappy with the way that publishing had been going. And he decided he didn't want to have normal publishers like before and get the money that way. He wanted to have a subscription service. So he sent people door to door with like, um, you know, the first chapter and said, look, there's this new book coming out. How do you fancy buying it? And then we'll send you all the chapters in future. And he basically, because he did this, it meant he could have full control of it, which meant he had full control of all of the um, illustrations. And it meant that when the illustrators kept sending him stuff, he was like, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that, don't like that do like that. Because- Love that oh. penis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's... So is that maybe why that's, they pranked That's one him? theory that the illustrator hated him so much because he kept asking him to change things that he was like, right, fine. Mm.
3: But they offered a massive reward to the pressmen working on the novel. and they, A $500 reward which would have been a lot mm. of money today. And no one fessed up so we still... There's no culprit. Wow. Still,
2: and is the is the investigation still open?
3: <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> I think the offers... <laughs> the reward is still available.
2: Um, He had a terrible relationship with his sort of typesetters and proofreaders and everyone like that, didn't he? mm. Which might be why they were so pissed off with him. He hated them. And it does sound like they kept on trying to improve his punctuation and grammar, which was deliberately vernacular. And once upon getting a text back and seeing the corrections that had been made, he wrote to a friend, I've telegraphed orders to have the proofreader shot without giving him time to pray. So it was tense, I think. If someone wrote that about me, I'd draw a penis on their picture.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the most successful book that he published with that firm. So the first two books that that firm published were Huckleberry Finn and the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, ex-president. And it was pretty much the last thing Grant did was write this book. And it was so successful that he gave Grant's widow the biggest ever royalty check in American publishing history. Like It was absolutely massive. And it was thanks to that door-to-door technique that James mentioned because it was war veterans... So it was Civil War veterans going door-to-door selling yeah. the book. And that's a pretty strong yeah. sell, you know.
1: I might be wrong in saying this, but from the story that I know about that, it's that when Ulysses S. Grant died, his wife was really struggling financially and was not given any um, help from anyone. And Mark Twain published the book and gave her that high amount of royalties um, before he knew it was going to be successful so that she oh, had... Okay money to live off for the rest of her life um apparently it's an extraordinary book that autobiography Um, really yeah yeah i've read so many things about it being the best book by anyone in government ever as a solid it's just incredible apparently surely not better than the art of the deal surely Surely not better than Jacob Rees-Mogg's
0: book about the Victorians. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be better than that, can
2: it? Now, if we want to talk about offensive language and
1: things. Mark Twain was wrote the first book on a typewriter in America. There's a bit of dispute over whether it was Tom Sawyer, or another one of his books. Um, it's usually credited as Tom Sawyer. Um, but he used to love writing on a typewriter and... No one really had it at the time. So people used to write him letters and he would write letters back on his typewriter. They would then write back to him asking about the typewriter. And that got so annoying with so many people writing back to him, asking him, holy moly, what is this? This is incredible that he stopped writing letters using his typewriter. She's really? got inundated. Yeah.
0: I really love his correspondence because he didn't really much like getting them a lot of the time, did he? I read one that he got in 1901. Uh, and the letter said Dear Mr Mark Twain I am a little girl six years old I have read your stories ever since they first came out I have a cat named Kitty and a dog named Pup I like to guess puzzles Did you write a story for the Herald competition? I hope you will answer my letter Yours truly Augusta Kortrecht to which he replied Well no he didn't reply he just wrote a comment on it saying lame attempt of a middle aged liar to pull an autograph <laughs> <laughs> oh. He invented one game for kids, which I think sounds pretty cool. So he he measured out a 817 foot path um, of his driveway and he marked every single foot and that was supposed to be a year and it was the year from 1066 when William the Conqueror arrived in Britain and the idea is you would walk along the path and at each point when there was a new king or queen in England or Britain, then you would Put a stake in the ground, and you would be like, Oh, this is Edward the first, this is Henry the second, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, and it was a way of having fun, but also learning your kings and queens. Because in those days, education was very much rote learning, like you just had to learn all these mm. things, and this was a fun way of doing it.
2: Or a very annoyingly slow way of getting to the front door after a long day <laughs> in the office.
3: <laughs> but he, he turned it into a board yeah. game, didn't he? Or he tried to. Yeah. It sounds really complicated. I, d- I didn't fully understand it right. even after reading yeah, you, it. Oh, I
2: thought it sounded quite it sounded a bit like Battleship so basically it was another sort of history date memorization game and essentially you'd have a chart with a series of dates on it and each player would say a date so you say um, like 1918 and then the other player has to say an event that happened on that date say the end of the first world war see I cleverly chose my date in advance so I'd have something yeah. to say for it I
3: um, mean you also chose a date that was nearly 10 years after Twain died when no one could possibly <laughs> guess what was going to happen
2: true but then a player puts a pin in that date if That's they get right, it right. Yeah. And if, if they don't get it oh, right, they okay. don't get a pin. And I guess right. when you've covered up all your dates, you've won. Sounds quite fun yeah, for a nerd.
1: <laughs> <laughs> OK, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy.
3: My fact is that before vaccination was invented, the main method of inoculation against smallpox was to powder scabs and blow them up your nose. Mm, mm. Lovely. Or to get someone else to blow them up your nose, that, I suppose. Harder, yeah. It's very hard to blow up your own nose. <laughs> um, and this was how inoculation worked for a long time. It was done in China a thousand years ago. This was the method they knew about this, and, and we, it did and work,
2: didn't it? It, it
3: worked sort of. reasonably well. So, if you were healthy, uh, you would get some smallpox scabs. And you would leave them for a little while because fresh scabs were likelier to give you the infection properly. So they would be dried, aged smallpox scabs and they would be powdered up and then they would be blown up your nose with a special silver blowpipe for the procedure as ah, well. The Chinese yeah. doctors had special blowpipes to do this. And then um, apparently the right nostrils was used for boys and the left for girls. Ah. And you would maybe get some mild symptoms. And some people did actually just then get full blown smallpox. Hmm. But uh, <laughs> most people then got it, you know, some mild symptoms and then were resistant to any following exposure. Mm. It was a low
1: percentage, wasn't it? The, yeah, yeah. yeah the um, um, so this
3: was a really decent way of doing it. Before before we had the method of vaccination. And, and we didn't know about this. Is that right? Uh, the 18th, It took about 700 years to get over. Wow. Yeah.
2: And it is worked by the same method as vaccination, right? Which is that it's an attenuated or weakened version of yeah. the disease yeah. um, in a scab.
0: And your body then makes antibodies that can fight against that. And then it can fight against the main thing.
3: Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I think. There was another version where you had some powdered scab as well. Or you had some pus from a smallpox pustule. And you would make a little scratch on your skin. And then you would just pour that pus or um, you know dust, rub that powdered scab into your skin. And that worked too And that's called variolation Because variola
0: was the Latin for smallpox Um, In 2011 The Virginia Historical Society in Richmond um, Had some things from its collection uh, And one of them was a letter From the 1870s That had a smallpox scab in it (gasps) And the idea was that the person who wrote the letter in the 19th century was sending it to his father. It had been taken from the arm of a child and his father was going to make it into dust and inoculate people. Yeah. Um, but then it never got to the recipient. And so they just found this letter. And of course, immediately, the Centers for Disease Control came in the hazmat suits <laughs> and like, said, holy shit, you don't need to be having this that the public can see this because smallpox has been eradicated, basically, hasn't it? And um, so, yeah, in the end, they've... There was some of the virus on this scab still, but it wasn't deadly enough. Mm, I mean, it must have it was, attenuated pretty hard yeah, cool by that exactly. time. Yeah, exactly.
2: Hundred? How? When was it? Uh, it was from
0: 1876, and they found it in 2011. Wow. wow, that is
3: really spooky. Finding it, not knowing what it is. Yeah. You, know, you just think you found a little button or something, and yeah. or
0: it's... maybe it's like a little um, sticker to put on your face.
3: <laughs> 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 but all these doctors had their own different methods of doing variolation, and there were some celebrity doctors in Britain in the 17th, 18th century who. work Mm. work this out. So, have you heard of Johnny Notions? No.
4: (laughs) Johnny Notions. Sounds like he's got some weird
3: ideas. (laughs) Well, he was a Scottish doctor and he had a really successful method for variolating because he would would collect the pus first of all and everyone had their own method of making it a bit less deadly basically. So, he would dry it with peat smoke so he had a lovely sort of smoky flavor for the past. <laughs> Very nice. And then he would bury it in the ground between sheets of glass, okay, with right. some camphor. Um, then he would keep it there for seven or eight years... This, it's like I he's know. making a whiskey, isn't it? it really, yeah, yeah genuinely is. And then he would uh, insert it, and he would then put a cabbage leaf on top as a plaster. Hmm. And this was apparently a really good way of doing it, and it yeah. just gave you the nice amount. I suppose it does take the edge off the um, pus, doesn't it?
4: It's <laughs> <Yeah, just laughs> a
1: nice peaty, cabbagey flavour to it. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, you were more likely to get a job if you could be seen to have smallpox scars. Oh, because then dude. the suggestion was, oh, great, you can work with us. You're not going to pass it on. You've had it already. Yeah. So that, that was seen as a sort of, oh, great, safe work, mate. So two, two of the earliest people who worked
0: with inoculation were uh, Robert Koch in Germany and Louis Pasteur in France. Mm. Uh, and they fell out with each other because um, Pasteur once was doing a talk and he used the phrase requis à la monde. Which means a collection of German writing, but the translator translated it as Augui Allemand, which means German arrogance. And so um, Koch never forgave him for that because he thought that Pasteur was calling him arrogant
2: although I think that before that they loathed each other if you read the dialogues that they had the letters they wrote each other it's just basically spitting with rage you know uh, cock writing letters to Pasteur accusing him of stealing all of his ideas and vice versa saying you're a fraud you know really foul language because there was this huge fight basically when we suddenly discovered the power of the idea of vaccination between a few scientists wasn't there Mm.
3: so was that was after Jenner? Yes, yes after it was. Edward Oh, okay. So
0: Edward Jenner is the person who um, kind of we give the, we say created vaccinations yeah.
3: today, right? He mm-hmm. um, got it from Milkmaids. Did he? Yeah Because mm. there were milkmaids near him And he noticed that they got a thing called cowpox Which is a disease that cows got And they would only get one single pustule on their hands Which is where they have been touching the cows Because of all the milking mm. And he theorised maybe this is a milder version of smallpox So then he did this amazing gamble Jenna, he took some pus from a milkmaid And uh, he injected it into a child Yeah. And then six, yeah, not his child, by the way. Although he did also do it with his own child, actually, later on, so fair play. Um, I think when he knew it worked. (laughs) And then he, six weeks later, he injected the child with full blown smallpox. um, And he didn't know how it worked. And um, yeah, and then, but later in life, they became friends. So, him and the child? Yeah, James Phipps. He was the son of uh, Edward Jenner's gardener. Which, if it hadn't worked, would have made the gardening very, very awkward, I think, for a long (laughs) time.
2: I think he would have ruined your rosebush after that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He had smallpox when he was a child, Jenna. Uh, And one of the reasons that he kind of went into getting rid of it later is because he had such a bad time of it. He was very elated, so they gave him some of the pus or some scabs or something. Um, But he was prepared for that by being starved, purged, and bled, and locked in a stable with other infected boys. With other infected boys? Yeah. So they kind of variolated all these people, gave them like very mild symptoms, and then
3: put them all in a stable. Wow. Meanwhile, Stanton Avery's outside of a chicken coop. (laughs) You don't know you're born, mate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact
0: this week is that you can tell if a movie character is a goodie or a baddie by the kind of phone they use. Mm. Mm -hmm. That sucks now that I know that
1: and I'm watching movies. I know. Sorry, this is
0: (laughs) not just a spoiler of one movie. This is a spoiler of all movies. (laughs) Um, So this came up in my RSS feed um, thanks to the blog Nitorama, which I follow. And it was an interview with Rian Johnson, who is the director of the film Knives Out. Uh, And he said that Apple have forbid filmmakers from letting villains use their iPhones on the screen. And so if one of your characters is using an Apple product, then they must be a good guy.
2: Mm. oh thanks so you can't tell who's the good guy in the good the bad and the ugly for instance <laughs> <Or> <laughs> it's a wonderful life I'm
0: not
1: sure any of them had
3: mobile phones in those <laughs> <laughs> they've been fine. edited in it's, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah but sometimes it's not clear who's a goodie and who's a baddie if someone is if someone pushes one person in front of a train to say five people who will be allowed an iPhone in the situation you're absolutely right in yeah.
0: any decent story everyone has a
3: mixture of good and bad <laughs> so of the everyone has one iPhone and one Android
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good good point actually that saves it for me because the movie might have been sponsored by samsung for example yeah Yeah, of course yeah so that's good okay great Um, (laughs) i'll stop googling which phone sponsored all my movies (laughs) um but yeah and there was
0: also an article in the verge that says that apple says that its products should only be used in the best light uh that reflects favorably on apple products and they don't they according to apple they don't pay to have their phones in movies but what they do do is give lots of free phones right. and macbooks and stuff to the people ah. who are making the movies uh, in return for them being nice. No, but sure. you,
3: they wouldn't show someone looking up on the internet how to kill orphans on, no. a, on a macbook. On a macbook, You couldn't no, do that no, no, on a no. macbook, no. Yeah, were to inject this person into the garden's <laughs> sun they wouldn't do that. Um, but this is a thing called product displacement Mm. Which is the which kind of like Product Displacement. Product Displacement is where you replace a real brand with a fictional one because the original brand are really annoyed about. Oh, okay. It. So um, there's a film called Flight, which stars Denzel Washington as an alcoholic pilot who oh, somehow yeah, he, he manages to pull off a crazy move. He, the plane's about to crash due to, you know, it's, it's all gone wrong on the plane. Mm. And he manages to fly it in upside down and then land it the right way up at the very last moment. I've got to say, the first five minutes of that movie is one of the
1: best things I've ever seen. It's so tense. It's so amazing. Okay. And the rest is terrible,
2: right? <laughs> you didn't want to say it out loud, but I've seen it too. It's shit. Okay. Well, wow, Dan thinks the film is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not to tell you not to watch it, especially now the ending's been spoiled anyway.
3: <laughs> well, the rest of the film is, I gather, just a lengthy legal process yeah. about whether he was right to save the play. That's it's a legal drama. Yeah. Imagine if you go to watch that film mm. and you're five minutes late. <laughs>
0: That would be
2: the
1: worst oh, thing ever. Man. <laughs> oh my god!
2: They should make it into a short and release yes. it, a short film. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's Robert
3: Zemeckis who gave us Back to the Future. He is an alcoholic pilot. <laughs> Denzel Washington. The, <laughs> the character, sorry, not Robert Zemeckis, not Denzel Washington. The character, but he drinks Budweiser uh, and a vodka that uh, Budweiser oh. own either while he's flying the plane or shortly before. I mean, you guys have seen the film, so you'll know. But Budweiser were furious about this, and they said, can you not show this drunk pilot sinking a bud before he flies ah. the plane? And they refused. They said, there's nothing you can do.
1: But it's so um, that happens. Sometimes movies do have to buckle to these bigger companies. So Slumdog Millionaire, when Danny Boyle mm-hmm. made that, uh, he gave an interview where he talked about the fact that he had some criminal gangs drinking Coca-Cola at one point, um, ice-cold Coca-Cola, and... I don't know what to
3: say. I like <laughs> yeah, so are, are we? Sorry, are you personally sponsored by Coca-Cola today?
1: Wow! <laughs> was it, it was a refreshing, ice-cold mm. Coca-Cola. So yummy. Yeah, <laughs> available in all shops. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, they're drinking in that, and Coca-Cola took. Uh, sort of stand against it and so they had to paint it out in the post-production of it yeah
2: Slumdog Millionaire was the most bizarre film I hadn't realised this but obviously at the time it was so huge and it won the Oscar didn't it Yeah, and it was massive I hadn't realised it was made by the same company that makes Who Wants to Be a Millionaire so it was one huge piece of product placement wow yeah
0: isn't that Jasper Carrot who makes that
3: does he I did so
2: well he wrote Slumdog Millionaire it might might be it's called Kellador yes Yeah.
3: he's pretty hands on with it, but yeah, he's he's a direct beneficiary I, of both those things. I think it's Celador it? yeah. Is it Selador? Selador.
2: yeah It's well, it's a company called Cellador. Oh, of course, it's like Celador I just got it.
3: I don't think no. I don't think it's deliberately named to be like the Cellador. <laughs> I mean, it might be. It's Jasper Carrot. He does lovers. His, I his think. Puns. Well, what's yeah. the metaphor behind Are
1: that? Selador, like, don't don't look something. behind the
3: cellar It's actually Jasper Sarat. <laughs> Any international listeners who wondering who Jasper Carrot is, there's no time.
2: Yeah. Um, so, Celador made this, who made Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and then they decided to make Slumdog to sort of uh, advertise Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Wow. And the screenwriter for Slumdog Millionaire was one of the co creators of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But the only thing that they stipulated was that at the end, and this is a spoiler, where he's being accused of cheating, the hero is being accused of cheating, mm. the host of Millionaire sort of tortures him backstage. And at that point, they said, we can't have it look like the show is torturing this boy because that's going to make us look bad. So it's just got to be the host. So it's like Chris Tarrant's gone out on a limb. But it wasn't what? Chris Tarrant in the film. But <laughs> Again,
3: <laughs> any international listeners who were clinging on after Jasper Carrot <laughs> <laughs> would well, now given up at Chris Tarrant. <laughs> um, so hang on, what, what wow. kind of torture equipment does the host of who wants to be a millionaire have access to backstage. (laughs) Like, you couldn't do more than a quick Chinese burn or a wedgie, could you? He's got (laughs) that
2: that tension music.
3: Yeah, he's got a super long advert break without (laughs) telling him. (laughs) I I found out, uh, just looking up product placement stuff, Mm -hmm. I found out one of the first ever examples of product placement on a podcast. Okay. So this was in 2005. There was a show called The Dawn and Drew Show. Okay. And it was the newspapers at the time had to explain what a podcast was which is so the report i read said a podcast is or this particular podcast is a program filled with strong language that is available (laughs) only in a digital format and downloaded on ipods and other devices that play mp3 files okay so that's what a podcast is Mm -hmm. and this one was the dawn and true show and it was sponsored uh, it was product placemented by durex okay and Durex um, had inserted their product into the show because it was hosted by a husband and wife and the show featured the husband and the wife and their dog Hercules tasting flavoured condoms okay. <laughs> that was the first ever wow, pro- placement wow. podcast. <laughs> okay. and the, fir- the firm said they were delighted and they said this is quotes exactly how we want to position the brand <laughs>
2: For dogs and humans alike.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like, no, because you'd have to have a dog meat flavoured oh,
2: which... Sure, They don't I love would... strawberry, do they?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <That's> God. incredible. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm just saying we've got further to sink before we hit rock yeah. bottom. <laughs> you
0: know, your, um, this is not a bit of product placement, but we're recording this podcast on a Mac computer. And we're okay. all good guys. <laughs>
2: um,
0: now, if you were to close that, and don't close it because we might lose the recording, but you would see that the apple is upside down as you're looking at it. Hmm. So maybe if you half close it, you see it's kind of upside down as you're yeah. looking. Now, the reason yep. that is is for product placement reasons. So it was in Legally Blonde, which is a properly great film. Oh, yeah, um, she is using an Apple Mac but the Apple is upside down to what we have it today because that's the way it used to be. Because it makes much more sense that if you have it closed and you're looking at it, the Apple is the right way up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's how it used to be. But then there was an employee called Joe Moreno who said to Steve Jobs, look, if we're going to put these in movies, what we need is when it's open and you're looking at it, the Apple is the right way up. Right. Yeah. And so they changed it.
2: Or if someone's just like watching you in a cafe, yeah. of course you've got to put it the right way up for the people looking at it, not yeah. the one who owns it already.
0: That's really interesting. interesting. Cool. So yeah. basically, the Apple on your Apple Mac is not for you, it's yeah. for everyone else. Yeah. Wow.
3: <laughs> Some advertisers, um, this is sort of the, the next step they're doing for advertising and things. So advertisers in soap operas are now selling billboards inside the fictional locations in the soap operas. Whoa. Yeah. So okay. Coronation oh. Street... Okay. Is a fictional street, yep. but it's a fictional street with advertising billboards on it, yeah. and you know, jewellery shops and other shops are buying up advertising space as fictional Coronation Street. Makes yeah, sense. so clever. And there's a new thing also that other advertisers are doing, where you know you'll be able to digitally alter what viewers see on screen when they're streaming. So, you so will be different
0: to- people see different things, is exactly. that what you're saying?
3: So if you are watching, uh, let's say you drink whiskey and your TV knows that you drink whiskey, um, there might be billboards for whiskey brands in the background. Whereas if you. But
0: what if you're
3: a person who,
0: like, secretly buys dog meat flavoured condoms? (laughs) And you're watching Coronation Street with your parents. That's such a
2: good point. That's such a good point. The whole family looking at each other suspiciously. (laughs) It's like an Agatha Christie. (laughs)
3: Yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, they might do it based on the time of day, even. So if you're watching late at night, there'll be adverts for... As we all do, watch Coronation <laughs> Street late at night. You'll absolutely. Have another late night set. Um, yeah, there'll be adverts for, I guess, late night stuff, like swearing. Or wow. Coca- whiskey. Cocaine. Whereas if you're watching in the morning, there'll just be adverts for cereal and orange juice. Wow. Or whiskey.
2: <laughs> just one ironic thing about this fact is that apples are a sign that someone's a villain. What? Huh? In films, apparently, people have spotted this. If you're the baddie, you're always eating an apple. Not always. This isn't across <laughs> films. Yeah.
0: So, Mr Bond. Yeah. <laughs> the bad guys in Doctor Who do that, don't they? Because an apple a day keeps the doctor away.
2: Oh. <laughs> uh, this is true. Please send in more if you've seen them. But uh, Draco Malfoy does it. Jeffrey uh, Rush in Pirates of the Caribbean and crunches down an apple Colin Farrell when he's playing a vampire in something or other um, <laughs> and it's it's got a name it's the arrogant apple sometimes okay. like, it's really just to show your dominance because okay. it's kind of showing you're so aloof yeah, yeah. I can eat an apple as well as talking to you I don't give enough of a crap about what you're saying to stop eating my I apple I wonder
0: if there's like the history of the poisoned apple in fairy tales and things
2: mm. that's been theorised oh, on the internet James oh. you should check the internet out for more on that <laughs> <laughs>
3: Garden of Eden
2: again traditionally
3: (laughs) An apple was eaten there it's all on the forums it sounds like we can think of everything on the internet Anna so I'm not (laughs) worried (laughs) okay that's
1: it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our Twitter accounts I'm on at Schreiberland James at James Harkin Andy
3: at Andrew Hunter M. At
1: Jasinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or well you can go to our group account at no such thing or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Why not check the internet out as well while you're there? <laughs> and uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye.
3: Anyway, uh, our sponsors this week are the new Durex range of pedigree chum. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. <laughs>